Irena Gamel is the author of Looking for Anne and holds a Canada Research Chair in Modern Literature and Culture at Ryerson University in Toronto. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Well, thank you very much for having me. Lucy Maud Montgomery calls biography a screaming farce. <laughs> a screaming farce. And this is what you've just written, correct? That's correct. I mean, we need to see that in context, of course, when uh, Montgomery was uh, was calling the biography a screaming farce was in a private letter to uh, her friend Ephraim Weber, who was himself a struggling writer in Alberta. He was very proud of her achievement. This was after she had become a famous author with the publication of Anne of Green Gables, and they kind of joked back and forth. He offered that he would write her biography, and then she responded. She said, no, you won't. She didn't want to be the subject of a biography. What I find interesting about that is that Lucy Maud Montgomery herself was very, very keen in writing her own life. She spent uh, a great deal of time writing in her journals, recounting her life, very much a person who wanted to be in control of her life story. Which means that she's an unreliable narrator. Exactly, who make mistakes, who are obviously very, very subjective, who may even lie. Some of these things we find with Lucy Maud Montgomery as well, a certain degree of self-deception. She had some very interesting ways of looking at, at her own journal that was so important to her. Mm. and she Almost had, therapy for her. She was a very depressed person, so she would write in this journal and would also write uh, when she was happy about uh, something and would render her own versions of events. And then years later, would again reread particular renderings and the feelings would be amplified. She would cry over her own writing. So these uh, journals were sort of an incubator for um, the work that you would find in her novels, then you say that? Very much so. The journals were very important. What I was able to trace in uh, my book, Looking for Anne, Mm -hmm. is that she systematically went back to reread her journals. She would reread passages of uh, her life with her father in Prince Albert, some of the friendships with Will Pritchard, for instance, her own school days, all of that she would reread prior to writing Anne of Green Gables. And so these earlier emotions would become part of Anne of Green Gables itself. And Lucy Maud Montgomery herself also looking backwards a little bit with a nostalgic eye because when she was writing Anne of Green Gables uh, she was uh, 30 years old in 1905 already a little bit of grey in her hair which she had cried you know uh, about and was was yearning for youth then right exactly so this element of yearning for youth was very important and certainly with Anne of Green Gables she was trying to recapture that youth find the magic of youth there's a couple things I want to focus on the actual magic in this book, what it is that has allowed it to be so popular over the years. There's some interesting ideas that you point to in the book, but before we get to that, I'd like to come back to this question of a biography, of reading the novel. There's, there are two schools of thought. One school that says you stick to the text. The other school is that you 
can get a, a, a lot more by reading the life of the novelist. I assume because you're a biographer, you would fall into the latter camp. I think what we wouldn't want is that we read a novel on a simplistic level through the lens of a life, kind of just establishing equivalency between what a person in the novel does and what an author does. This Would is what you tend to do in this book here. Only to a certain extent. I think what, what's important and what is interesting is to know the life of an author. Let's say when we've read the work of an author, whether it's Jane Austen or Lucy Maud Montgomery, and loved the work or even looked at the work critically, I think there is a very legitimate interest that we may have in the writer herself in finding out what is it, what were the circumstances that brought about a certain work of literature. In that context, as a biographer, I'm interested not only in the everyday circumstances, in the everyday feelings, let's say, that may have been behind the writing itself, but I'm also interested in the larger culture of the moment, which I see very much as part of the biography itself, and that's where an element of history also comes into the picture itself. But how does that add to the experience of reading the novel? It helps us with the interpretation of the text itself. There are many people who at the time said, well, Anne of Green Gables, it's just a little juvenile text. What I was trying to establish and what certainly my research shows is that it's far from. Mark Montgomery had absorbed to a great extend the literature of the time. She had also helped herself to a great deal of the very popular influences, whether they were the just cutter kind of uh, exactly yeah. the, uh, the the formula and stories. I mean, I was so surprised when I discovered that that taught me a great deal about Lucy Maud Montgomery's approach to writing itself. Like what? Uh, well, it it certainly taught me how much. She was was a craftswoman. She was trying to teach herself. She had not the benefit of an enriching writer's community. No, she was isolated. But yeah. how, sorry, but how does that help us when we're reading the novel? Big deal. I still think that it's interesting where some of the influences come from. That, to me, is very, very interesting because what I would like to know is... What is it that is original in Lucy Maud Montgomery's text? And in order to find that out, I need to find out what the different models are that she has absorbed and what are the ways in which Lucy Maud Montgomery transforms those very models. So in a way, that was part of the story that I was trying to tell, let's say, from that literary point of view. So what you're trying to do then is to see how she may have transcended the genre to turn her novel into a work that uh, became a, a classic. What is it that makes this book a classic? I would say it was the ability to kind of distill the formula genre and take that particular genre and inject herself into it with her own emotion. I think in in a way what Lucy Maud Montgomery was able to do is make people feel very profoundly with her text. There are many people that I talk to who say, oh, 
Anne of Green Gables was the novel that that taught me that that you can cry over a book. This kind of emotionality, the the power to affect readers on on that level, was something that she injected into the text itself. I think we get a very good sense of Lucy Maud Montgomery's own sense of loneliness, for instance. Just to look at that, then there's there's two things. There's the technique that she used, and then there's the the actual themes or the content. So one of them is loneliness. Another component is the uh, the satire. She had a very, very sophisticated sense of humor. She gives a wonderful portrait of the Canadian small town, and in fact the novel opens with that. It does not open uh, with an image of a heroine, even though Anne herself, her personality, is really what carries the novel itself, but it also is that uh, that element of satire. Poking fun at parochial busybody, for example. Mrs. Rachel Lind yeah. is the person who opens the novel, and we get a very good sense of that panoptic Mrs. Lind who supervises everything, who sees everything. But, but that's not, not new. George Eliot did, did that. Yes, of course. But it's still very, uh, I mean, within the Canadian context to to show the kind of uh, a woman who, who is a wonderful housekeeper, for instance, and at the same time is also a flawed character. And what I always admire in that context with uh, Lucy Maud Montgomery is that she's able to start out with a stereotype. When you read the first description of Mrs. Lynn, she really is a type. Then she evolves. She becomes a much fuller, from a, from a kind of flat character, she moves to a very rounded character who understands Anne in the end. She, will she changes. Then. She changes. She undergoes a change, exactly. In addition to that, I would say we, we have, and that's where I see the subversive element of an Ella Montgomery come through, to play with gender roles. When we look, for instance, at Matthew and uh, Marilla, it's Matthew, the man, who understands Anne Shirley's yearning for fashion. It's Marilla who is the very sensible one. In fact, it's Marilla who uh, wears the pants in the household, who really lays down the law, and every so often Matthew will object to that. So there are some very interesting subtleties and subversions in the text itself that I think uh, have been able to stand the, t the test of time, mm. and are also something that, of course, the late 20th century or early 21st century readership would still be very, very interested in okay. these kinds of reversals, for instance. The other element that I find very interesting in, in that context is also the non-traditional family, that we have a child who is being adopted by a brother and sister couple. They are the most unlikely of parents. And we see Anne Shirley, of course, being able to transform them, and they open up, and they become the perfect parents. In a way, it is a tribute to the non-traditional family. On the other hand, it's also a little bit a tribute to Lucy Maud Montgomery's own imagination and wish fulfillment. To bring the family back together. Exactly, yeah. to bring the family back together, and it's something that she herself obviously did not realize in her own life, what she was very disappointed by. I mean, the, the grandmother was, was certainly very loyal, but very undemonstrative. The grandfather wrote 
Lucy Maud Montgomery out of his will. When was that? Was that right before uh, she actually wrote Anne of Green Gables? No, that was actually a few years earlier. Earlier, but Fine. the pain that she felt, I imagine. Was exactly, and and she knew after the grandfather's death, uh, and then she returned basically to live with her grandmother, and was responsible for taking care of the grandmother. The rest of the family basically had given her that responsibility. But it only allowed her to stay in the house, basically, and she knew that once grandmother died, she would not have anything. She didn't have an inheritance, and she certainly didn't get the house. And I think there was some bitterness about that. She never talks much about that in her journal. And that's where we come back to what we discussed earlier a little bit that unreliability, some of the elements that were very important to her that caused a great deal of pain. She did not talk about very much. She no. talked about... But she fixed it in her novel. I mean, exactly. Was, was sort of a wish fulfillment. Uh, exactly. So that the thing. novel for Lucy Maud Montgomery was also a little bit of therapy and it was repairing. Yeah. It was repairing the world, and that was part of her writing philosophy as well. It was part of why she had embraced romance and would not let go of romance, even when Optimistic. modernism came along and uh, when the war came along and when everybody realized that the world, romance and the real world were in, in huge uh, contradiction. Lucy Maud Montgomery held on to the romance genre. She transformed it. The genre became much, much darker during the war years. So even when you look at um, the 1917 uh, novel, Anne's House of Dreams, it has the beautiful title. It describes the wonderful marriage between Anne and Gilbert, which, of course, is the ideal marriage itself. But at the same time, it's a text that is also very dark, uh, where we see another marriage that is not very bright with Leslie Moore, her good friend Leslie Moore, who is this very passionate, very sensual sort of figure. But it's very clear that the, 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 the marriage to, to somebody who is uh, uh, incapacitated is a very thwarted marriage, and that is a totally modernist uh, motif. You know, when you look at Ernest Hemingway or D.H. Lawrence, you know, kind of the thwarted sexuality and so forth is very much a kind of modernist trope almost. In her own life, she had to deal with that with her... Good point. Her, her husband, Minister Hewan MacDonald. Who also suffered from some severe mental illness. I guess what we, we want to talk about, what it is that you learned from her life that helps you and the reader to perhaps identify what it is that turned this into a class. There's a couple of things in the book that I see you pointing to that explains this. One is this emptiness that she experiences because of the fact that her parents, in effect, abandoned her at an early age. Yeah. And this is something that, that is sort of almost universal. It goes back to Homer, the searching for the parent. So there's that. And then there's she was influenced by Hans Christian Andersen and his fairy tale themes. So she's combining this yearning, this, this desire to fill an empty hole with a fairy tale. And it seems to me that's why this book has stood the test of time. But I, I don't know that there's anything original about that. What I find original about it is that we are looking at a young girl, certainly from the level of, of some of the gender motifs, I find that there is a great deal of originality in the text itself where she is pushing the boundaries. Yeah, I 
in, in the sense that we get an Anne Shirley who's allowed to be tempestuous and get away with it. She's not punished for it. In fact, she becomes a role model for everybody else. We have a figure who has a certain wild side to her. And what I find amazing is that Lucy Maud Montgomery started out really helping herself to the formula within the Sunday school uh, orphan stories, for instance, even to the point that we had little Formula Anne stories. But she contributed to, to these... Uh, exactly. Presbyterian... Presbyterian, Methodist... Uh, yeah, even though she satirized some of those religions, but when it came to using them as publication outlets, she was quite open. Well, this, this, uh, what was so impressive about her was that she was able to make fairly good money doing this. Uh, as, a, as a single woman being able to make a living as a, uh, as a writer. Good point. But coming back to the earlier point, uh, when you asked what is original about it, mm. let's say this use of the Sunday school uh, model, but at the same time also subverting it. And Shirley is not a Sunday, a classical Sunday school character. There is that almost excessive sensuousness that we see in her enjoyment of nature. She is often described as almost a pagan figure. Yes, exactly. And I find the dryads, the dryads bubble, etc. And so that takes it out of that classical Sunday school tradition because what Lucy Maud Montgomery really celebrates is the subversiveness underneath, is that pleasure, that enjoyment, is the character who finds more scope for soul expansion in nature than she does in church. I mean, she's tapping into her a really deep-seated ancestral love of the land. She's Definitely. being true to that. Even her descriptions in her in her journals of walking down Lover's Lane and having that kind of uh, spiritual connection with the land, this sense that she could almost lie down and die and, and be together with the land itself, even that is a very sort of non-Christian idea. It's where Lucy Mont Montgomery herself is very subversive on the pages of her journal. And we see those elements echoed in the text itself. So this kind of profound connection with nature, the uh, creation of uh, imaginary friends, mm. all of these elements kind of spring right out of her own experience. So that's where Lucy Maud Montgomery transcends the pure formula and, and creates a text that kind of uses a beautiful formula, distills it, and gives it that additional depth and certainly the point that I'm making in uh, in my book, Looking for Anne, there is that Anne herself, in the way in which the character is built, is a multi-layered character, is in fact even uh, on many levels a, a contradictory character. Mm. That's almost set up right from the start, you know, when we first see Anne, we see her from the perspective of the ordinary observer who just sees the ugly dress, the cheap dress, and the freckles, and the red hair, and the mm. fact that she's so skinny. She's, she's an ugly duck to talk uh, Hans Christian Andersen's language. Exactly. Exactly. And then she immediately steps around, she says, but the extraordinary observer would see that, that the eyes are expressive, that the lips are sweet, and that no ordinary soul kind of dwelt in the body of this uh, of this 11-year-old. Not a simple 
Correct. Always torn in different directions. There was the love of the land, there was the love of Cavendish, there was the love of the rural, and at the same time, there was the other Maud who just wanted that success and wanted it very, very powerfully and strongly. And as she writes in her journal, she said even as a child, she wanted to write that novel. She saw herself as a famous author. So it was the idea of fame, the idea of also making money and being a self-sufficient writer mm. that was important to her. It's also trying to fill that hole with fame. Good point. And it, sadly, in her own life, you realize that it just doesn't work. And I think maybe, again, we're hitting on a, on a universal theme here, trying to make up for a childhood yeah. that perhaps lacks a mother's love. Good point. To a certain extent, I do think that she did succeed in kind of filling that hole a little bit because mm. her means was was the pen. It was writing mm. right from the start. In a way, she wrote herself an audience that loved her back because she injected so much emotion into that mm. text. People cried. People laughed. People wrote her fan letters, yeah. and she responded to every single one. Even when she was uh, sick and tired toward the end of her life, she would sit down, she would still respond to her, to her young fans. And I see that also as a sign of the dutiful Lucy Mont Montgomery who receives a letter and that letter must be responded to within a certain... Like a loyal mother would. Exactly. Yeah. But at the same time, there is also that emotional component. She also wanted there to be more letters. She wanted more letters to come in. Oh, it was never enough. There was a very strong sense uh, of, of uh, she needed the fans' love. Uh, For her own uh, sense of accomplishment or achievement. or Exactly. And probably because there was that sense in, in her life. Love had never been there, yeah. uh, even with her own family. It, later on, she said, yes, they did love me, but they never expressed it and I didn't feel yeah. that I was loved. Yeah. And, and, and so she uh, probably has this poor belief that she's unlovable and good this, is, point. this is a way to, to get that back. To get that and yeah. that's why the literature itself has to be a, a, a profoundly emotional literature too. In other words, she strongly believed that that it had to have a strong affect, that she needed to move her readers. When you look at part of Lucy Maud Montgomery's philosophy, even the nature philosophy, there are some interesting parallels with an Emerson or a Thoreau or the uh, certainly the British romantic tradition that she knew inside and out. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's where she had taken some of these influences from and also the celebration of nature from. But at the same time when she read Emerson, she said, hmm, this is too much just thinking with the head. Mm -hmm. And in a way what she does, she takes Emerson and brings him to the level of the heart. She speaks on that level, and that was her forte. And at the same time, she was not just purely the heart, but she injected a different discourse, and that was the satire. So it was tempered with that. So you have that kind of nice mixture. It's not just the heart. It's not, it's not overly sentimental. Exactly, exactly. It's always kept in check. It's a perfect balance. And I think that's what readers appeal to because this is a text that can be read by young and by old. She has the kind of appeal of a um, 
uh, of a Mark Twain who also wrote for uh, an audience that could be a, uh, a children's audience and it was meant as an adult audience and in fact he always claimed that it was for an adult audience because children's uh, literature at that time certainly didn't have much of a, of a, of a high status. And yet, you know, you think of Swift and uh, Gulliver's Travels and yeah. how if you can write a book that appeals to both children and adults, then you've got, uh, it's not a masterpiece, then certainly something that's going to stand the test of time. Yeah, and notice, for instance, the um, first edition cover was the cover of a uh, Gibson girl. She doesn't look like a young 11-year-old. She doesn't look like the cover we now see so often of the young Anne just arriving at Bright River Station, sitting on that pile of shingles. That's one of the very, very popular images that we see, for instance, in the 1964 Canadian edition. It had been drawn by the Toronto illustrator Hilton Hassel. The earlier edition, the 1908 original edition, was in fact taken from a New York fashion magazine, The Delineator. At the time, uh, this, this was even an image that uh, when it first came out in 1905, that women and young girls could write in and kind of get a little poster off. And the fashion was to have this framed or passepartout with cardboard and then used to decorate the room, the boudoir, the bedroom, etc. So that by the time uh, Lucy Maud Montgomery's Anne of Green Gables came out, readers, female readers, would already have been familiar with this particular image. It would not have been a new image for a, mm. a good number of the readers because the delineator was a very famous uh, magazine with a very high cir circulation. So that's on the book cover. Yeah. Looking for Anne, you see the, uh, the uh, delineator image uh, over there. I'm talking with Irina Gannel, and she is the author of Looking for Anne. Before I forget, when I read the title, I obviously thought of uh, Beckett and the fact that we may never find Anne. This folds back into our original conversation about biography, and, and does it, first of all, give us any truth about the author, and does it shed any useful light on the actual work of the author? I think what's important, let's say, in, in this kind of biographical approach to uh, looking for Anne is that what we find out there is that uh, Anne herself kind of being made up of all these different pieces, that we have, for instance, the uh, face that was inspired by an Evelyn uh, Nesbitt, a New York uh, model, that to me was sexy, was it is a sexual object. exactly when you look at that picture it she she looks we see her here with the beautiful flowers mm. adorning the face obviously it is a photograph that is very carefully composed that is telling a story of a girl looking up at the stars and dreaming and there is a bit of a nostalgic quality to this picture as well when i first saw this picture and lucy Maud montgomery put this picture in her journal in 1934 and said this is the girl, the real-life American girl who inspired the face of Anne. When I first saw that picture, I was blown away because I felt that she looked so different from what I had always imagined yeah. Anne Shirley to look like. And then with that picture in hand, I looked back at the text itself and in fact discovered the many, many different moments when we see Anne Shirley doing exactly what we see in this picture, and that is look up at the stars, kind of have that visionary 
sort of moment. And a dreamy kind of a look as a well. A dreamy look, and Anne is a daydreamer. What is crucial to Anne's personality is the fact that she has an imagination, that mm. she can't be limited, let's say, but what, by what she's been given. What she's been given in life is very, very little. All she has is herself, and even herself she doesn't even like 100% because the hair is red and she's got freckles, etc. So she has to dream everything into existence. And I think that is also one of the very empowering elements of the novel itself that uh, makes people return to it. Many people in Japan, for instance, even report that they read this novel as a kind of self-help work, oh. that it really helps them. And when we think that Lucy Mont Montgomery was writing it, uh, making herself feel good as she was giving this one-hour each evening, as she describes it, in the twilight of the day, writing this novel. And then later on, people picking it up and reading it and getting the same kind of pleasure out of it, therapeutic pleasure. And in fact, you mentioned that she uh, took these self-help columns quite seriously. Yes. So she read them. What's the juice that people come back for? I Is think they come back to the fact that we have a character who basically... Uh, is, is confronted with impossible situations and always manages it by being so positive, mm. so optimistic about it. So American. Is, is always able to transform it. And in a way, that's where I get back almost to the, the transcendental philosophy, the romantic philosophy as well, the ability uh, that, uh, that things can be made better, mm. that the world is not as dark as it appears we can make things better mm. and that element is certainly very very firmly embedded it's almost like a fictional uh, power of positive thinking it is it is a little bit and it also is a little bit like don quixote when you think about it you know to dream the impossible dream and, and not to be shaken off that dream exactly either. and to stay with it and what we see with Anne is that in fact every time there is an impossible situation she manages to overcome it, and through the power of words as well. She is a great talker. She has a great way with words. So there is also that element that words themselves have a transformative power. And so, too, words had a transformative power in Lucy Maud Montgomery's life because she wrote mm. her way out of those very simple, modest circumstances that she'd been born into. And by the time she got married, she was able to pay for her own honeymoon that took her to Europe. She was fulfilling her dream in that sense, certainly. She was able to help many friends later in life, uh, family as well. She was always a very generous woman. She had certainly transformed her own identity in very significant ways. And then I think there's also that element of taking agency. We have a little girl, a little orphan, without any rights in society, and that's, of course, very powerfully established early in the novel when she's confronted there by Mrs. Lind, and Mrs. Lind kind of puts her in her place and tells her that she's just an ugly little uh, duckling, uh, <laughs> to put it mildly, and Anne kind of lashes out at her. And Anne asserts herself, and she really transgresses in ways that uh, a child is not supposed to transgress within that particular circumstance. And of course, 
everybody is on her side. She is kind of punished for it, but even the punishment is transformed and becomes a moment of pleasure for Anne, uh, in the sense that, in effect, she uh, puts Mrs. Lynde once again in her place uh, in, in the apology scene when she said, uh, you know, I'm so awfully sorry I, I said this, I, sh- I shouldn't have said it, you know. I think that's why the Japanese love it so much. It's yeah. sort of a slap at authority figures. Good point, good point. We get a very good sense of vindication, mm. let's say, the little person's vindication in uh, looking at some of these scenes. And it is a child, it is a girl child asserting herself. That is particularly pleasurable when we see the context that surrounds her. And it is that Victorian context with its very strict rules. It is the authority figures who lay down the law. And even in ancient comedy, we enjoy the moment when the tyrant stumbles. And so... Mark Montgomery also draws on those kind of elements of of humor in injecting satire. I think she's a brilliant satirist as well. Irina Gamble, uh, author of Looking for Anne, you make a point in the book about what Northrop Fry and uh, Margaret Atwood say when they characterize Canadian literature as a struggle against nature and how Lucy Maud Montgomery, in fact, does the opposite. Her writing is is almost like travel literature. Yeah. Perhaps you could address that. I mean, in a way, she certainly beautifies nature yeah. and Canadian nature. And so, in a way... Lucy Maud Montgomery does not really fit into that paradigm. In, in a way, I mean, they've developed the paradigm that works for so much of Canadian literature. Yes, but, but it this doesn't. Is, this it, is, this is a very important work uh, as well. Do you think this is the exception that proves the rule? No, no. I think even when you look at the Confederation poets or Bliss Carman and so forth, you find something very, very similar, and that is uh, an, an, a nature description that is very, very different. I mean, in the sense that it really focuses on the pastoral, the beautiful, the good in nature. Mm. You know, nature as the big healer, basically, so much more influenced by the Romantic tradition itself. In fact, her prose reads a lot like the tourism promotion literature you might get from PEI. Exactly, and it ties in exactly with that kind of discourse as well. Then also helps, let's say, in turning... Uh, Prince Edward Island itself into that kind of literary shrine that uh, that we see, and uh, to a certain extent, when we look at the representation of nature uh, in Anne of Green Gables, um, it is a carefully framed uh, representation. She's almost like a painter painting a picture in the sense that she gives us, for instance, a very clear focus on certain months of the year. Springtime. Exactly. Springtime, almost a third of the novel, focuses on springtime, whereas the months that are not so nice from November to March are virtually left out. The same with rain, for instance. Rain is is virtually missing in this novel, even though Prince Edward Island with the beautiful grass, of course, uh, requires a great deal of rain. So it is a carefully constructed, a romanticized image of nature that Lucy Maud Montgomery gives us. 
we've talked about this almost a false impression of the climate. And that's another thing that when we juxtapose her life with the work, it's false in the sense that this woman had very difficult bouts of depression. She had trouble sleeping. She, particularly in, in later life, took all sorts of medications and drugs to try and help her with her sleep. And yet, as we've discussed, a lot of her friends and acquaintances had no idea of the hell that she lived because she was able to put on a mask and perform brilliantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it seems like she's done the same thing with, with Anne. She's, she's almost developed another persona, an alter ego, that compensates for how difficult her, her real life was. There is a very powerful argument against reading outside of the text. Staying with the text is the only truth. Yeah, but I don't believe in that. We have a text. I think there are all sorts of multiple ways of reading a text. We will always look at a text from a certain perspective. We can just look at a text and respond directly to it through a kind of reader response. We can take a certain psychological approach to a text. We can situate a text within a certain context. We can look at how images, structures, symmetries or work within a text, we can stay totally kind of within the text. That is a choice we might make in terms of interpreting it. That's the debate is between using aesthetics as the fundamental judge of a work of art versus biography, social context, political, etc., etc., And there's an argument that that's what really what English literature should be about, is the aesthetic value of a work. And and all of the other interpretations should fall into the different departments rather than English literature. I think to a certain extent, when we look at a work from a from a biographical point of view, when we look at at looking uh, looking for Anne, for instance, what that book tries to do is simply show us kind of the different facets of both the author and the birth of the character herself. And my goal in writing that book really was to say, this book, this character are so important, they are so famous, they are so inspirational for so many people. What really is behind this particular novel? How did it come about? What were the circumstances? That was the story I wanted to tell. Uh, What I found in doing research on Looking for Anne is that there was, in fact, a very interesting sort of mystery behind this, a mystery in part resulting from the fact that Lucy Mott Montgomery herself was, uh, was very silent about the writing of the novel itself, that she mm. gave us so little information, that she told us so much on the pages of her journal, but never said about a word the about the actual writing while she was writing the novel. So, And why is that? Everything we have is kind of uh, retrospective. She herself explained it by saying she didn't want to jinx things, which 
may very well be the truth. I would imagine that there is a variety of reasons for doing so. One reason may be that writing was something that she just did uh, and uh, didn't want to comment on at length, but in later years she did comment about the other novels. And the other reason is that she drew some of the ideas from her notebook. And even though Anne of Green Gables became a bestseller almost immediately, she did not keep those notebooks behind, even though she kept a lot of other material. She uh, We don't know. The notebooks have disappeared. She could have destroyed them. They could simply have become lost or whatnot. But she had a habit of systematically destroying letters, for instance, or certain writings that she didn't want people to see. They may have been very personal. What I find interesting even is that she has a habit even of copying friends' letters or excerpts from letters into her journal that she meant to survive but did not keep the letters themselves. I wanted, especially for the centennial, it was important to me to kind of recount how this novel came about because for many of the novels we want to know, especially for classic works, especially for works that have been able to stand the test of time, we want to know what is it really that Mm -hmm. went into the making of Frankenstein for The Sun Also Rises. Wonder why we're so interested. Why the text isn't enough. Well, I think it's a tribute to the text itself. If a text has the ability to be so fascinating that people keep coming back to it, that readers say, oh, not only did I read Anne of Green Gables once, I read it twice and three times and four times, and now I want to read it again at a later stage in my life, those readers are also passionately interested in all of the details that have to do with the text itself and what went into the making of the text itself. I think that's just a natural curiosity that we all have. In something that that has caused us to feel deeply, I suppose. Exactly. We've had an engagement with this author. This author has allowed us to feel something really special. Exactly. And And a biography is always a tribute, I think. A biography is, first of all, homage to the author. And secondly, we also want to look at the underside. In other words, we don't just want it to be a whitewash no. or to come no, out. We want a truth, a truth. Exactly. We, there, there is a certain, uh, we want to look at, at an author's life or at, 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 a, at a work of fiction and how it came about from multiple perspectives. We want to be as objective as we can be in retelling that story. So in that sense, we are trying to get at a certain truth by applying multiple perspectives. I had many moments of discoveries where what I discovered truly, truly and profoundly surprised me. I would not have expected to find the uh, two Formula Anne stories, for instance, that there had been two stories preceding the writing of Anne of Green Gables that were so close, actually, to the Anne of Green Gables itself, and that for the first time allow us to see the ants without the E. And that, again, I found that made me, in a way, admire Maud Montgomery even more, because I think there's a lot of chutzpah and, and a wonderful wit and irony in having Anne say, oh, if you're going to call me Anne, please call me Anne spelt with an E. So there was, in a way, this kind of play with the former texts as well. So the thing that you pinpointed as 
an improvement. Is this very irony itself? I think uh, the irony is a, is a very important part of it. And also uh, the fact that Anne is such a multifaceted character. To use Maud's own words, a real-life character. By, by that, she means she's breaking out of the formula. That's what Mon means. She doesn't mean the simplistic sense. She is like a, a girl walking down the street. By that, she means she has, in fact, built a character who is so lifelike, who is like a girl walking beside her, as she describes that. But she's very aware that this is a character who has grown for a long time, that the evolution of this character was, in fact, a very slow evolution. And what I was also able to pinpoint in, um, in looking for Anne was that there were two periods that were particularly important for the creation of the character and for this layering of the character. One period was around 1892, when she herself was kind of 18 years old. That's when the little orphan, whom we see here on the book cover, Ellen McNeil, arrived. And she jotted down the arrival of this little orphan cousin in her notebook. Elderly couple applied to an orphan asylum for a boy. By mistake, a girl is sent them. And that is the line that she will pick up ten years later. Based on real life. It's based on that figure, but in that same notebook that we don't have anymore, but that I kind of pieced together in this puzzle. During that period, 1892-1893, she also found a lot of interesting elements in Godie's Ladies Book and other magazines that she would have copied, that she would have put side by side with this entry. And that was very important, very important influences for some of the characterization of Anne and for some of the scenes in Anne. What she's, what she's doing is sort of picking up on the popular zeitgeist. Exactly. And this is, this is perhaps why it was such an immediate hit. And that was 1892, and then she does the same thing again around 1903. 1903 is the year when the glamour girl Evelyn Nesbitt entered the McNeil homestead and several other components as well, including that second Anne story, Lucy Anne, which is so similar to Anne's arrival at Green Gables. Lucy Anne arriving in this little uh, Sunday school story from the city and being picked up at the train station by Miss Calista May and on the way back home riding on the buggy she rejoices you know she loves nature it's the kind of gaze the first look at the beauty of uh, of nature and that's what we find with with Anne Shirley as well but with Anne Shirley it's so much more sophisticated this is my second to last question very specifically how did she get this character to be so lifelike. We've already talked about complexity and we've, we've talked about this universality and that type of thing, but yeah. on the page, what techniques did she use to make this character so real? I think it had very much to do with, uh, with the fact of how she herself d describes the arrival of Anne in her imagination as a flash. She said, and which, is, which isn't really the truth, though, is it? Because you've just I, talked about all of this 
and layering that's, that's taking place. And that's taking place, but I think it still took that kind of, that's what I describe in the book as the perfect storm. In 1905, this very, very harsh winter, where she withdrew more and more and more into daydreams, into that realm what Coleridge always called the kind of twilight zone of consciousness. In that period, feeling so desperately lonely, calling out for her mother on the pages of her journal, I think her own kind of situation blended together her own powerful feelings and and hunger for love, hunger for a home, all of that blended together with the formula and stories and brought it up and kind of gave birth to this colorful character. So in effect what you're saying is that it was the transference of this deep emotion to the page was very direct. Yeah. Yeah. But what did she do on the page? Did she... What, did she use particular words that, that I think she's uh, she's brilliant at using uh, a dialogue she, she is wonderful at describing for instance the uh, conversations there between Matthew and Anne and I think many many readers are really seduced by it. so it's, it's a visceral direct truthful conveying of emotion to the written word yeah I think the emotionality is very very authentic and uh, certainly the loneliness is authentic. Certainly the desire for love is authentic. But at the same time, it's also embedded within a wonderful irony because we see Anne role-playing all the time. Anne herself, even when she arrives at, at Morella's place and it's clear that uh, she's not wanted because she's not a boy, and she then is totally distraught and she says, oh, I'm going to um, break, uh, break into tears. And of course, that's exactly what she does. So even the fact that she announces them, it's this overly theatrical kind of motif. So there is that element, too, with Anne, that she's a little bit of an actress, too. She's involved in her own acting. And I think we are all cognizant of that. The reader is connected with the real Anne, and Anne tells yes. us, now I'm going to act. Exactly. And she is involved. There's that very subtle line where Maud always gets away with it. Even in the apology scene, it's very much the same way. The apology scene is no real apology. She doesn't truly apologize to Mrs. Lynn because the apology is so overdone. Marilla realizes that. The reader, of course, realizes that only Mrs. Lynn doesn't. Yeah, she's mm. duped by this. We realize kind of w- w- what is happening We're there. We're kind of thumbing our nose. Exactly. Her. We are with her. We yeah. are on her side. Okay. So there is always this element of uh, sympathy of bringing the reader to Anne's level. We are certainly on Anne's side in in all of these uh, situations because the the situations are so impossible at times even to win over Matthew who's afraid of little girls that she's able to win over Matthew as a kindred spirit in these early pages of the novel and how elegantly that's done and how she rejuvenates Matthew we all like to believe in that and it's believable on the page itself and of course It's also done a lot through contrast because Matthew himself doesn't really say very much. But what he says is very true to character. And the dialogue is always very, very good. She's very good at crafting dialogue, certainly. 
the humor is always very well presented, and uh, and so is the satire. And it is overall Anne's personality that carries the day on the level of plot. It's, it's not an intricate plot. It's it's an episodic plot as the adventures of Huckleberry Finn are, or uh, Don Quixote. Yeah, I'm glad you raised Kindred Spirit, because it seems to be a, a key to understanding Lucy Maud Montgomery. She, she yearns, as we all do, for kindred spirits, and how difficult it is to find them. Yeah. Just This is the last question that takes us to the end of her life. The last, I don't know how many years of her life, she struggled with, with depression, and this may be the, the psychoanalytical way of looking at this whole conversation because her parents abandoned her she had a, an, an emptiness and that was difficult to fill one that people who suffer from depression typically experience here's something that happened in her life and she suffers the physical consequences like, like so many people do and yet she masked it with this character so I wonder if you could comparing the real life to the fictional life, how did those two play against each other? There is certainly the element um, of wish fulfillment uh, with Maud in creating, uh, in creating Anne Shirley. And there is also this element that she herself played up where she said, well, I was able to keep the shadows of my life out of my fiction. That was her goal to not talk about the darker side of life. Later on, uh, during the 1920s, when a modernism was in vogue, a very different style of writing was in vogue, uh, she was... Uh, which, which is what? Sort of or stream of consciousness? The stream of consciousness, but also what she called the sex novels. That is, the novels that uh, talked about adultery and child abuse, and all of these things were, to her mind, something that should not be talked about in fiction. She wanted to keep fiction clean in a way. But at the same time, even while she complained about the modernist writers and their sex novels, she herself opened up her novels and the later novels are much much darker yeah even when we look at the emily series it's a much more unsettling text than anne of green gables is so she was obviously also incorporating again some of the elements of the time in rilla of ingleside she talks about the war and the losses in the war but even in that novel uh, the war itself is is something that also gives opportunity to human sacrifice when you contrast that with an Ernest Hemingway for instance in the farewell to arms Ernest Hemingway will say well these are all the words that betrayed us you know valor and sacrifice and so forth don't trust those words but for Lucy Maud Montgomery they were words that she wanted to continue to give value to positive outlook. Exactly, yeah. Family was important to her, loyalty was important to her, love was important to her, friendship was important to her. So all of these things are uh, elements that she validated and that her fiction validated as well. She found herself, even as she was writing Anne of Green Gables, certainly at the cusp of the modern era. When I looked at the uh, magazines at that time that were so influential, 
what we see in the magazines around 1905 or around 1908 when the book came out was increased advertisements for cars, for speedboats, for um, very modern bathrooms. So the world was already a very, very different world. While Maud was writing this novel, this was no longer a Victorian world. In, in, in a way, the more we live in a in a modern world the more the world speeds up the more there is also need let's say for looking backward and holding on to what might be in danger of being lost that's where i see her nostalgia uh coming in and uh, her desire to hold on to some of the things that may not be there tomorrow such as the homestead which led to her idealization of green gables such as love that had always been so precarious in her own life it made it all the more important that she uh, turn it into an ideal an ideal at least on the page it kind of had a substance on the page she gave it a reality on the pages of her novels of her fiction and so too with family she didn't have a stable family life and so she created an alternative idealized family in her fiction and through that I think she was able to encode some very interesting transformative messages as well and certainly messages that were very very different from the uh, original Sunday school stories that she may have tried to imitate so that that to me was uh, was a very interesting uh, lesson that I learned. Irena Gamel is the author of Looking for Anne and also Baroness Elsa, a cultural biography, voted one of the top 25 books of 2002 by New York's Village Voice. She also holds a Canada Research Chair in Modern Literature and Culture at Ryerson University in Toronto. Thanks very much. Thank you. It's been a wonderful interview. <laughs>